The kettle's boiled, Vic. Great. Perfect timing. Just a dash of milk for me, please, mate. Here you go. Shall we get started, then? Have you ever woken up on a Sunday morning and said, I'm never drinking again, and then found yourself waving 50 bucks at a barman by happy hour? Are you wondering why everyone else can stop at one, while you head to a dodgy after-party with a weird bloke called Disco Dave? If so, it might be time to take a deeper look at your relationship with your reliable social crutch, alcohol. On each episode, we'll investigate our own dysfunctional dealings with booze and find out if it's possible to stop this deeply ingrained habit before things get too messy. Yep, we're going to open up a shame shed of humiliating drinking stories to help you understand why waking up from a booze coma each weekend with a kebab sticking out of your top pocket might actually be negatively impacting your health. Hamish and I are here to delve into what it's like being sober. An unwanted warts and all look into why giving up those cheeky pints or putting down those mummy wines will make you feel happier, help your anxiety and mental health and turn you into the most sparkly, authentic version of you. Won't that mean I become boring though, Vic? Well, Hamish, we'll just have to wait and see. I'm Victoria Vanstone. I'm Hamish Adams-Cairns. And this is Sober Awkward. Yeah, so my nan put a biscuit on the table when it had chocolate on it and somebody had already cut their toenails and they, she put a chocolate biscuit on top of the toenails and not realising they sort of melted into the biscuit. Oh. And then she ate the biscuit and wondered what was all stuck in her teeth. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, gross. You got any funny stories about your nan? Nope, none. Oh, typical, oh, Alan. Thanks, thanks, no Alan. stories about anything, is he? He's cheery oh. today. Yeah, he's always cheery. He's just welcoming us into his pleasure dome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that is exactly as creepy as it sounds. <laughs> it's a bit sexual. <laughs> Alan's sex pleasure, pleasure, pleasure dome, yeah. How's your week been, Mick? Yeah, it's all right. You know, usual ailments in my house. There's always something going on. I've had a bit of a dodgy hip this week, Hamish. How old are you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm falling apart. I've been limping around the house like a pirate. Oh, my God. Yeah, I what's going on I, I hopefully it's just going to get better and I won't have to go and have it removed <laughs> like everything else I have to have removed how about you how was your first week it's been it's been real it's been yeah the first week of no drinking I've had a few social events nothing too crazy I guess that's the advantage this is a good tip actually if you're thinking about giving up booze move somewhere where you know very few people and have a child because oh, yeah. your social life explodes. <laughs> yeah. In the, uh, not explodes, it... Um, implodes. Implodes, yes. that's the word. It implodes. So I'm not getting calls all the time saying, do you want to go to the pub? Yeah. Um, so it's easy to not drink-ish. Yeah. I have found I've had a lot more time on my hands. So I've been running in the evenings. I've signed up to a marathon that I'm going to do in a month. Oh, great. So I'm running in the evenings. I've had... A lot of my friends like to send me their best man speeches. Right. I think it's because I like editing them and I'm also not at most of the weddings, so they're not wasting laughs on me. Okay, yes. Um, and they can, prepa- so, they can pretend that they've written it then. Exactly. So right. I've had lots of time to help a friend edit theirs. But what I've noticed, and I would never have noticed this before giving up drinking, is how many of the jokes and stories in the speech are drink related. Yeah, it is basically a booze speech, isn't it? Exactly. So I actually had to go through a run through with him and said, we need a cut. He was speaking about the wife. Yeah. I was like, there's two drinking stories about the wife. Yeah. I can't 
one is enough. Yeah. It is her friends and family. We don't need to say she's always drunk and she yeah. kisses people at cocktail parties, you know? So you're starting to notice the impact of alcohol on everything, which does tend to happen when you give up drinking. You start to see the bigger picture and you start to see how it sort of infiltrates into every part of your life. And when you're drinking, you're kind of just knocking it back and not really realising that that's going on. But as soon as you stop, of course, you realise that booze is bloody everywhere and you can't avoid it. It's in best man speeches. It's at the pub it's everywhere you go like kind of subliminally trying to kind of melt into your brain and that's why I think that's why Hamish some people find it really hard to give up drinking because you can't bloody avoid it I know but I'm scared I'm going to become the annoying git that's like don't drink come on guys (laughs) don't worry that's exactly what I am it's good we're making it cool Hamish that's the plan (laughs) they're not going to think of us as sober gimps eventually they'll think of us as sober legends and that's what we're going to be talking about today a little bit isn't it generational change Um, Um, So we're going to discuss generational drinking habits, which is kind of what we sort of leads on from what you were talking about, Hamish, all of these changes in habits that you are experiencing on the day to day at the moment and how they run through and kind of trickle through our lives generally. I often get emails asking me if alcoholism is hereditary. It's a question I avoid answering because it lays blame elsewhere and that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable, Hamish. I take full responsibility for my totally being a complete pisshead, but there is no denying that some of my drinking habits are very similar to those other members in my family. Yeah, Vic, it's interesting. It seems you can go either one way or another. You either hate drinking if your parents are huge drinkers, or you follow suit and head down the same path. I wonder what the stats are. What percentage of people born into big drinking families overdrink themselves? I reckon it's a high percentage, Haim. But is it actually in the blood? Are we destined to just drink because of our genes? Does our genetic disposition start us off on the back foot while we're still in the womb even? Or is it just a family character trait? Are we predisposed to being party people? I think I was. Basically, Hamish, is it nature or nurture? I don't know. We're also going to find out why going sober has such a huge impact on you and the legacy you leave behind. Yeah, if you're constantly failing at moderation and keep waking up with a regurgitated carrot coin on your pillow and you don't want your descendants to follow in your zigzaggy footsteps, then perhaps this is the episode for you. Today we're going to tell you our own family's history in relation to alcohol in the hopes it will help you understand yours and find out how much of our drinking is down to genetics. We also want you to understand that if you come from a family tree that's been soaked in booze for as long as you can remember, it doesn't mean you have to be two. You can saw off the branches, chop down the tree and be the one, the person that breaks the cycle and changes centuries of unhealthy ingrained habits. Yep. It's time to get to the root of this sticky problem. Get it? Yeah. Branch-related yeah. jokes. Nice joke. Yeah, tree jokes. J-O-K yeah. joke. There's something in that. <laughs> There's something there. <laughs> I want to start with a quote from my mate, Faye Lawrence, who's the, the ambassador, I guess, of Untoxicated, which is a, a social network in Australia for sober people. The quote that she shared just resonated with me. I just love it because it makes me feel kind of cool, <laughs> which I'm not sure that I am. If you saw me right now, what I'm wearing, <laughs> I'm pretty much in my uh, dressing gown. Never underestimate the cycle breaker. Not only did they experience years of generational trauma, but they stood in the face of that trauma and fought to say, this ends with me. I think that quote sums up the impact of what we're talking about today. Let's start about talking a little bit of our own family's history, Hamish. I mean, mine, they were the party people with no off switches. 
They were the ones that were topping up the cheap flutes of sparkly and dancing until dawn. And I, I, Hamish, I never saw it as a bad thing. That was my problem. It was always celebratory. I remember growing up, my granddad having his rollies in his armchair next to the gas fire with a glass of whiskey. It was a very classic habitual habit that nobody else recognised because it was so ingrained in our family. And of course, in those days, you never really questioned your alcohol intake when I was growing up. It was just down the men's club or down the pub. My mum used to dip my dummy in the whiskey to make me go to sleep. No. I mean, no wonder. <laughs> Explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, and everybody was crazy and falling in the bath around me. There was always a party going on. My mum was always handing, you know, all of my life, I've just seen a glass sort of crossing my, my eye line where my mum was handing you know, her plastic garden champagne flute over to my dad saying, fill her up, Roger, fill her up. So I've constantly been bombarded with alcohol from a very, very young age. It wasn't anyone's fault. I don't blame anyone, but it was like I was living in a pub, <laughs> basically <laughs> growing up. So yeah, there was always booze around me and I never really saw it as a problem. We went to France and uh, on the way back, it was just the car filled up with the exhaust pipe dragging along the auto route because the car was so heavy with all the booze in there. So, yeah, it never ended in sadness or shame or or hangovers. If somebody had a hangover, it was always giving them hair of the dog. Mm-hmm. My first memories of booze are kicking around those, you know, those silver wine filling things. What are they called? Do you remember from the wine that they used to get in a box yeah. and it was like a silver thing and we used to blow it up and kick it around the garden. I remember whiffing at it and sniffing at it and going, oh, that's, that smells nice. I know I want some of that, but I don't know why. And I just saw that alcohol made people happy and saw how people connected and how they socialised and relaxed and it became how I lived. And my attitude generally going up with my family, Hamish, was like, if you don't drink, you're not in my tribe mm. and I don't want to know you. What about you? Well, before I get into mine, as you told that story, I was just imagining you as a child with a whiskey dummy and yeah. then these glasses being passed in front of your eyes, almost yeah. like you're being hypnotised, yeah. like, like a swinging clock in front of you. You're slowly falling into this booze world. Yeah, that is totally what it is. Yeah. And I always knew as a kid, if the Carol King Tapestry came on, which was my parents' favourite album, I knew it was time to go to bed because I just couldn't bear to hear them warbling on. Yeah. Well, my family is... Almost the polar opposite of yours yeah. there. I have never seen either of my parents drunk. Um, and I know for a fact that my mother has actually never been drunk. Um, she always tells us quite proudly she's never been drunk. She's never tried a spirit. She's never tried a cigarette. She's never tried a drug. Oh, that's incredible. I think that's a very, very rare thing nowadays. I know. Well, she yeah. grew up wanting to be a nun. Oh, did um, she? Yeah, right. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah so right. That plays into it. And I thought... I remember getting to the age, I was like maybe 15, 16, I was like, this is bollocks, right? So I asked her best mates and I asked her mum when she wasn't around, like, come on, this is just something that you tell your kids, right? Yeah. No, honestly, she's she's never been drunk. It's for her, it's a control thing. Right. She doesn't like feeling out of control and alcohol is out of control. And it's funny that it's because we're kind of taught that being out of control is a good thing. Well, I was, Hamish. I was told that, like, this is what we do. This is fun. This is going to relax you. And we're all getting out of control and that's okay. Whereas, in fact, you were probably taught the opposite. Like, your mum was kind of this this pillar of, of strength in your family mm. because she was always in control. And yeah. that's someone that you grew to look up to, I guess. Yeah, my, my dad's similar. I've, I've never seen him drunk. I'm sure he might have been drunk at some point in his life, but mm. certainly never in front of me and I would say probably never during my lifetime. That is incredible. Yeah. yeah. My mum actually had a nickname growing up. She was always single and she'd go on these holidays where everyone would get pierced and everyone yeah. would be in couples. So her nickname was Bod. I was yeah. Like, What's Bod? Yeah. Boring old dyke. Oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, which is oh, harsh. Yeah, that is pretty yeah. harsh. Um, but yeah, so uh, her slogan is you don't have to drink to have fun. Like, that yeah. will be on her tombstone. That is her. Yeah. She's like smashed that into us. That is a brilliant child. saying though. You don't have to drink to have fun. That is my, her thing. And mine was you have to drink to have fun. Yeah. So the total opposite we're talking about here. It's it? fascinating. But I guess, yeah, what, what I admire most about that in both of them is that they're both confident enough to speak to anyone. You know, they'll be in a room full of drinkers. They'll go to these parties. They'll go to these um, drinks parties or dances or whatever it is. And they're happy to sit next to anyone and just carry themselves and hold a conversation and be fun and And do they stay late? Do they stay up late? No, they're early They're early to bed. Yep. So they're the people that go to weddings and then leave when the music starts. Oh, God, I love them. They're all about the church ceremony and the official nuptials and then they are out <laughs> when what we would describe as the fun really kicks off. So that's when my parents would arrive with loads of cheap booze and my dad would spike the punch. Yeah, my parents will <laughs> never meet your parents because they'll be arriving and leaving parties at the same time. Oh, I might need them to bail my parents out of jail one day that'll yeah. probably be about it but then yeah I guess I've got an older brother who I would say is a similar sort of approach to drinking as, as I did which was I guess normal he, he went to Hong Kong and Hong Kong is so we said we said last week that no country is not so yeah the booze. expat scene on those yeah. in those sort of communities so is massive quite, boozy culture yeah exactly that is quite a heavy boozing place but yeah he's got a, a sort of healthy-ish relationship with booze yeah um, he hasn't gone down my, my parents not sober but not far off life route Um, and I guess I never even realised that what my family did with booze was unusual until I met my friends' families Mm. and I can actually remember feeling jealous that my friends were able to have a few glasses after dinner with their parents and then have those deep tipsy conversations with their parents about that time they tried drugs or that girl they fancy or whatever and I felt like I never had those conversations with my parents because that's when they went to bed and we kept drinking. Because you thought it seemed kind of cool that they were all kind of relaxed with each other and they could communicate in this way and talk about their innermost deepest feelings with their mum and dad. But of course, you know, they're not going to remember that in the morning and it probably felt a bit awkward the next day that you'd spoken to your parents about. I mean, I never spoke to my parents about anything like that because I was always hiding everything that I was doing because I was so young when I started. Mm. No, I was 12 when I started stealing bottles of booze out of the garage. So I was often hiding my alcohol intake. And I never had, I, I mean, I don't remember ever having any one-to-ones with my parents and I was pissed. It was like my own solo mission. It was nothing to do with them. Yeah. yeah. No, it wasn't until I was older that I was grateful that I didn't have those conversations, you know? Like, yeah. you, know you know when you're like 14, 15, yeah. and your mate's parents that like would sneak you cigarettes with the cool ones... When you grow old, you're like, mm. those parents were losers. Yeah, Why those, are they yeah. cigarettes were 15 years old? I mean, there used to be a house that we used to go to. There's always that house, isn't yeah, there, when yeah, you're young, yeah. when you're a teenager. The cool parents who let you skin up spliffs in yeah. their lounge. Yeah. <laughs> I used to go around this house and we'd all be there and the parents would be there and they were probably kind of gross, the parents. They weren't They weren't cool at all. They were a bit scraggy <laughs> and uncool. I mean, we were probably 14 years old and we'd be all like smoking weed in the lounge and doing bongs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking back now, that is not cool. Well, my mates didn't want to stay at my house growing up because it was the opposite of that. Yeah. There are loads of other parents from houses in London who'd be like, you come yeah. in drunk, yeah. you can come in late, we yeah. fill up the fridge with beer. My house was not the fun house yeah. for sure. I must say, my parents, they didn't let me drink. It wasn't like, oh, you can drink as much as you like as soon as you turn 12, 13, 14 or whenever it was. They were still strict with me and they were still conscious of my drinking. I think it escalated after I left home and it became a bit more of a problem. So when I was young, I wasn't saying just because my parents drank, 
I drank as well and they let me. It was more like I drank and I hid trying to copy what they were doing. So they weren't all like, yeah, go on, you have one, you'll be fine. Mm. It was kind of me stealing the booze that was surrounded. So it wasn't their fault is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it's interesting, isn't it, Hamish? It does sound like, perhaps for me, Hamish, I was destined to be a problem drinker. I was surrounded by a cheerful drinking culture when I was growing up. I never had reason to question it, if I should drink or not. I followed my family and did what everyone else was doing. I shaved off an eyebrow and found myself a comfy bush to pass out in. On the flip side of things, I wonder if you had been born into my family, whether you would have had a different relationship with alcohol. It sounds like a nature versus nurture debate, but is it possible that this is connected to your family's genes? Well, you know, you love a science bit, don't we, we Hamish? Let's take a deeper look into that. What I found out was that alcoholism does seem to run in some families. And I must say here, when I'm talking about alcoholism, I'm not talking about something that's really extreme. I mean, of course it can be, but I'm talking about this this spectrum of alcoholism where we all sit on different places on it. And I've definitely sit somewhere in the middle and perhaps you sit fit somewhere in the beginning and some other people sit, sit far at the end. And when we talk about this and we're talking about alcoholism, we're saying if your family has a drink problem or they've misused alcohol or they've used it to numb out emotions and things like that. So just remember, when we talk about alcoholism, we're talking about a vast spectrum of problems. Absolutely. Scientists have found that there is a 50% chance of being predisposed to alcohol use disorder. Your genes may predispose you to become an alcoholic if your parents or grandparents were. I looked to and found many studies online that claim that there is a hereditary connection, but there are other components too. Yeah, I like to think of it as like this big pie chart. It makes it really easy to describe. The title of which is, what are the chances of me having alcohol use disorder? So if you imagine that pie chart, imagine that circle. If your family drink, then you have this biological influence and that's 50% of that pie chart filled up. Then add psychological issues such as mental health disorders. That's another 25%. Environmental issues such as living near the pub or watching people drink on TV or alcohol manufacturers bombarding the general public with ads. These are all subliminally telling you to drink. That's 15%. And social factors such as money, culture, religion, work influence, that's another 10%. I can't do the maths, but I reckon that's a pretty full pie chart. 135%. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> all of those things combined could make you susceptible to becoming an overdrinker if you let them. Listening to all that makes it feel like it's almost out of our control. All those factors make it seem like we're born into this and there is no other route. But of course, we are pleased to tell you that this is not the case. No matter what the stats show, is there a part of you, Vic, that blames your family for your past drinking habits? I think that was something I learnt in my heavy therapy sessions. I mean, you learn a lot in 12 weeks in a dark room with a stranger. And would you, and the the teddy gimp, bear. You'd know about that, <laughs> yeah. the sober gimp. I can relate. In a dark room with a teddy bear, <laughs> been there most of your life, haven't you? I learnt to look outside of blame because I realised with my drinking habit, even though, yeah, there are similarities and you could say that it was this person's fault or that person's fault, I found that pointing the finger was futile because it just puts blame somewhere else and then I'm going to cause problems. People will be hurt by what I'm saying. And it wasn't anyone's fault. No one was forcing me to you know, open the fridge and crack a bottle of wine. No one was like forcing my hand as I downed a pint. It was always me. It was my hand reaching out for that drink and therefore I had to take responsibility for it. So blaming my family and the culture and the history and all the generations before me, it was a total waste of time. I understand that had an influence on me, 
But when it came down to it and I knew that I wanted to change, the only way I was going to do that was say, it's my fucking problem and I've got to bloody well deal with it. So actually, I don't blame anyone. Even though there are these influences that surround me, I don't blame anyone. Apart from Alan, maybe. I might blame him yeah, a bit. Yeah, blame him yeah I think well. it's his fault, actually. It sounds like there has to be an age that you reach when it's your fault. You know, if you're a 14-year-old alcoholic, yeah, to an extent you can blame your parents or your influences. But as soon as you hit 30 or 40 and you're still drinking too much, it's defunct to blame anyone else. You know, that's at some point it's become your own responsibility, you know, your own mistake. I wonder what age that is. It's probably 25, I would say. Yeah, when you can't fall back on your parents so much and say, this is you, where you've got to go, right. But actually, I didn't learn it until I was 40. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm just a, I'm just a slow, slow learner. learner. <laughs> <laughs> I know your parents are not big drinkers. So what do you think influenced your habit of mostly overdoing it every time you went out for a social gathering? Yeah, well, again, I don't want to blame anyone, but for me, it would have had to be my friendship group. You know, I grew up in a circle of friends, all of whom drunk and all of whom drinking was cool and we need to drink. Um, And I think I just slowly fell off the wagon. What is it? On the wagon or off the wagon? Off it. Off the wagon? Yeah. yeah, I certainly (laughs) lost control, I guess. Or or just wasn't a strong enough teenager to go, nah, I'm not going to drink today. You know, I was was a sheep. And part of that is I played a lot of sport. And I think we'll, we'll probably talk about this later on in another episode, but changing rooms, sporting culture, both as a viewer, as a spectator. You know, I'm passionate about cricket. Cricket is an all-day drinkathon. Yeah, most sports, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, but cricket in particular because it's all day. Be your football, I guess, yeah, you go to the pub before, then you watch the game, you might drink during the game, and then you go out afterwards. But cricket, yeah, you arrive at 10 in the morning and you start drinking until it ends at 6 or 7 o'clock. Wow, and you can just go to the bar. All the bars are open. Right, I've never been to a cricket match, Hamish. I'll take you. I'll take you to a (laughs) cricket match. I'm not sure I could bear it. Well, I quite want to do it sober. I might start drinking again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I want to do it sober. So, yeah, I want to see what it's like to go to a cricket match. Oh, that'd be a good challenge for you. Excellent. So, I'll take you. You're coming. Okay, like it or great. not, kicking and screaming. Yeah, that sports culture is toxic, actually, isn't it? It is. It's and it's not just drinking. You know, I think it's, those environments can be quite homophobic. They they are laddie. It would not be an easy place to be camp, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Because you're easy pickings. People will just go for you. Yeah, they're, they're a weird macho environment in which beer definitely plays a role. Gosh, yeah, we'll have to do a whole podcast on that, oh, I think. Oh, God, yeah. That is a fascinating environment, really. Especially I've been to football matches before. And even as a woman, I felt weird there. And it's not very many environments you could go to mm. nowadays and feel like, you know, the odd one out just by being female, let alone being non-gender specific or or gay or anything else that's kind of a bit different to everybody else. But, yeah, that, that's fucked up that those environments still exist, yeah. actually, isn't it? Well, isn't it sad you've just said I was the wrong gender to go to football? Yeah, I do feel like that's- that wrong yeah it was it was really frightening actually and the only thing they were doing there was it was a a Millwall game versus Reading and no one was watching the match and all they were doing was putting their fingers across their throat going I'm gonna fucking kill you later and then all the buses got smashed up and I had to run away it was so scary I thought gosh I'm never going to a football match again and I never have yeah yeah (laughs) so it's interesting yeah I'm not sure if I would have had as much fun or if I would have got along as well with my teammates and every sporting team that I was in if I didn't drink because it was part of it definitely in London when I, yeah we played football on Saturday afternoons and then it was the minute the game finishes we go to the clubhouse and we drink until dark so you think yeah. oh football it's only two hours you'll, you'll you'll be back by five o'clock yeah never it was all day drinking we, you know someone 
took it in turns to buy the jugs yeah. and we just went for it. All dayers. Isn't it funny, like in rugby as well, that like they go on about, they're probably quite a homophobic environment as well, mm-hmm. but then they're all in the showers smacking each other's asses afterwards, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's always a very close line between very, homophobic yeah, and... And gay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, it's often the homophobes that are on the maybe edge. on the edge, yeah. yeah. So if you get sober, it means you're changing habits that may have run through your family for many lifetimes. The choice to quit is about more than just you not drinking. It could mean you kick generational drink problems in the meat and two veg. Oh, lovely. I love meat two veg on a Sunday. Not, not what I'm talking about. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Gross. Yes, your decision to quit might not seem it, but it's actually groundbreaking. A seismic shift in a habit that will seep into the roots of your family tree. What do you think your family will gain from you being the cycle breaker, Vic? Well, I'm hoping that the changes that I've made, of course, I'm hoping my children won't drink, Hamish. I'm really not sure that's going to happen. I really don't know. You have to probably check in with me when they're 18 and I'm probably bailing them out of a, a, a penitentiary in, at Rikers in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd be interested to know if there are any anyone that didn't drink from that age. Yeah. You know? How many... 14-year-old kids, you know, who are strong enough to go, no, I'm not going to have a drink. I don't know. Probably not many. Mm. I'm, I'm interested to see. I mean, my kids have a good attitude around alcohol now. They're still only young. My son, George, said he'll only drink alcohol-free beers with dad because that's all my husband drinks mm. now. So if I can keep that instilled in them, like saying, look, you are good enough without alcohol. Mm. Don't spend your life trying to make yourself be cool and try and get other people to like you because that's what it's about. It was about fitting in when you're a teenager. So you're really vulnerable at that stage because of your confidence issues and whatever, which we're going to talk about on the next podcast. But, you know, it's hard to fit in at that age and alcohol does seem to help Mm. when you're young. Um, And that's why I started drinking. I think it's why most people start drinking. But then it's a slippery slope if it carries on. So I hope by me leading by example, they won't have issues because of me. So my hope is everything I do now is in the hope that my children won't drink. But of course, I can't guarantee that. And I have no idea how I'm going to react when they do. I think I'll find it really difficult, quite honestly, and quite triggery because I just don't want them following the same path that I did and risking myself and terrible promiscuity and all these awful things that I did, I will definitely be talking about the dangers of alcohol with them as they grow up. And as you said, Hamish, I'm going to teach them to be a leader and not a sheep. You know, teach them that you can go out and have fun. I'm trying to show them that I am still fun without alcohol. And that's the point that I'm going to drum into them. Mm. Look, mummy's still fun. Even though she's in bed at half past eight with a hot chocolate and a Netflix, I'm still a fun person, I hope. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting challenge for you as a parent, if, yeah. if they do drink, you know, how do you approach it without riddling them with guilt? You know, you are, this is no drinks. Yeah. So how do they not feel like they are betraying you by drinking? And, you know, they might drink and have a very healthy relationship with booze. Who yeah. knows? But yeah, it's going to be, yeah, it's going <laughs> to, who knows? It's going to be a, interesting bridge to cross when that comes well it does worry me because now you're saying that now I'm instilled with fear because I suppose they might hide it from me because Mm. of what I do and and because I'm a preacher of non-booze life I just think yeah perhaps they might hide it from me Hamish which is a whole horrible other kettle of fish isn't it that I'm going to have to deal with I'm just going to be on full alert I'm going to have binoculars I'm going to be like going like AWOL in bushes like a soldier watching (laughs) them 24-7 they'll have tags on them like those Apple tags (laughs) following them on maps everywhere. I'm going to be totally on the case. But of course, I know they probably will drink and that's something I'm going to have to face and feel sad about on my own in my room at some point. Yeah. yeah. 
What about you? Do you think this this huge change that you're making now, this this year of going alcohol free, if you carry on, do you think it's going to have impact on your? You know, you've got a, what a two month old little boy. Yeah. How do you think this is going to affect him? Similar to what you've just said, but but less black and white. I hope that it can just show that. I can instill good habits in him. You know, I can just say, look, this is the example that I'm setting. You can take it or leave it. But, you know, I have experienced both and I think this is the better route to take. Yeah. If you don't, that's totally cool. You know, you, yeah. you don't have to follow in my footsteps. I think a lot of kids beat themselves up about not following their parents' footsteps. And I think I'll try and be as understanding as possible if they don't. You just reminded me, I think parenting often is a lot about preparing yourself for failure. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you build your hopes up and then the kids do something wild and crazy and get expelled and then have horrible boyfriends and all these things. So you're try- all we're doing is trying our best, isn't it? Yeah. And this is what giving up alcohol is for us, is us trying our best mm. to give our kids the best opportunity to not drink. But yeah. I think the bigger lesson I'll be trying to teach them which is bigger than just drinking i think is the fact that it's okay to be different i don't drink most people drink that's cool if you want to do anything that the rest of the sheep do go for it you know i think that i would love to have a kid who's unique and makes his own decisions and is strong enough to or her if i have a daughter hopefully my wife definitely definitely wants one yeah you have to have sex with your legs up against the wall that one i've just said let's we've already done that (laughs) (laughs) too much information cut that out Um, no i've just said let's if you want a daughter let's adopt because i don't want to have a third child yeah um but yeah it just you can adopt one of mine i've got three going spare you've got a girl yeah yeah you could have i'll have her and see, I just hope that I can encourage them to not be afraid of being different. That would be yeah. the biggest lesson I hope that they can take from me not drinking. And with that, I think you can help create a more authentic confidence. You know, that is drinking is sure. Most people are confident when they drink. Yes, that is probably true. Um, but it's not authentic confidence. It is booze cloud confidence. Yes. So I hope that they can build up enough confidence by not being a drinker to yeah, so just to be a really cool, independent, strong, confident human being. That would be an amazing trait to pass on. Again, we live to fail. Yes, of course. <laughs> I think end- our hopes are so high, aren't they? We're going to be so disappointed. If my Hopefully son, not. If my son ends up being a crack addict and homeless, I'll still love him. That's <laughs> yes. still fine. That's fine. What are the generational benefits for your children and grandchildren and their children and their children if you do make the incredible change from booze monster to sober legend? So firstly, the general health benefits, of course, will be handed down. You have less chance of abusing alcohol, your kids do, if you don't. You're taking that 50% biological factor out. So if you don't drink, it's more likely your kids won't drink and you're going to pass that on. That general health will be better. With health in mind, we should and we hope we will live longer. They will live longer. We will meet our grandkids. We might even meet our great grandkids. So, yeah, long life is always an easy benefit, isn't it? Yeah, and of course, you're not jumping out in front of cars and, you know, balancing on balconies when you're not drinking. All these crazy things I used to do as a youth, I realise now is super risky to my life. You're taking those out of the equation and there's a chance that you'll probably live longer for sure. You'll get more respect from your kids and grandkids. You know, when they're young, they won't appreciate what you did. But as they grow older, I think as they hit 40, probably, they will understand what you did. You gave up alcohol for them and what a cool thing to do. And it's going to be life changing for them when they realise that they will fully respect you. That's what I'm realising now. I'm 31. So it might even happen before you hit 40. Yeah. 
You also get to leave something behind, something amazing, which is that gift of authenticity and choice. That is what you give them. You give them the option to to choose booze or not choose booze rather yeah. than just go, me and your mum got hammered every day. So Yeah, and that's all you can do is give them a, the option of a choice. That is amazing. Um, they won't think about alcohol when they think of you. You know, sometimes if someone passes away and it was to do with alcohol or or you just remember them as that party person, when you think of them after they pass, it will just be, oh, yeah, they were a big drinker. And that's not how I want to be remembered. Mm. I want to be remembered as somebody who was fun and authentic and all these other things. I don't be remembered for being a drinker. You'll also create happy memories that you can actually remember. Yes, that's <laughs> an important one. And they will know that you did it for them. That's a great reason. On your deathbed, I, we always like to daydream about our deathbed. Yes, we always love that. Yeah, with everyone around topic. us yeah. just crying yeah. and devastated. Oh, he was such a great why, guy. Why? Um, you can reminisce that you did a good thing. Yeah. And those left behind will hopefully be inspired by you. That is my biggest goal in life, actually, I think. Yeah. And the point of this podcast, if we can inspire one person. Yes, Alan. <laughs> if we can inspire Alan. Alan to stop drinking. Then our, jo- then our job here is done. You would have redefined fun for many people that live on after you. That is my mum's message. You don't have to drink to have fun. Yeah, we love your mum. We're going to invite her on the podcast. She wouldn't have any good drinking stories, though. My mum would be in here for hours. <laughs> it would be you talking by yourself and mum just going... No, I'd be hiding in the corner, hiding my face. Oh, God, not this story again. Not the gin story. <laughs> She'd just be judging, judging, judging. <laughs> yeah, it'd be awful. <laughs> Yes, you get to be called the cycle breaker, the one that changed a long ingrained toxic family habit. What a legless legacy that would be, Hamish. Absolutely. And it also gives you the ability to be happy and feel joy without alcohol. And that's what we are. That's what Sober Awkward's all about. It's about feeling the awkward and doing it anyway and being happy without alcohol. That is always our point. <laughs> so apart from the newly sober genes, Hamish, what other characteristic traits do you hope to pass on to your kids? This is a difficult question because yeah. this is saying things that you do good. Yeah, so what do you... I know, so you've got to be really like narcissistic yeah, right now exactly. and tell us all the easy. wonderful things about you. <laughs> Hopefully okay. your good looks, Hamish. I can, I'm sitting opposite you and that's one thing if you pass down, then that's good. That's sweet of you to say, this is audio only. So yeah. people can just close their eyes and imagine I look like that. A good Brad face Pitt. for radio. Yeah, they'll never know what I look like. Um, I guess... The trait of mine that I like the most, and this Mm. is so difficult to say as a British person particularly. Massive cock. Huge cock. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Carry on. Oh, yeah. That is it. Just pray that my child will have my cock. That's really it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, no. Other than my my cock, um, I guess the the trait I like about my (laughs) myself is the fact that I see myself as a chameleon and what I mean by that is I I feel comfortable enough to speak to anyone no matter where they're from or what they do or you know any any kind of background I feel confident that I can get along with them yeah that is a trait I would love to pass down to my that is a lovely trait to have um, what else do I like about myself? It is tricky. Um, I like public speaking. That's a good one because most people hate public speaking. I know yourself, you're on a sort of journey. I of hate trying it. To, yeah, yeah, I fucking hate it. So I, I like it. And it's good to like something that everyone else hates because then people think you're an alien. Yeah. Um, travel has played a big part in my life. I literally wouldn't have a child if I hadn't booked a holiday to Australia and then met an Australian and had a child with that Australian. So I hope they love to travel. That's that's actually something I worry about quite a lot living in Australia mm. and bringing up a child in Australia because mm. it's so far from everywhere. Yeah. So it's it's easy to never leave your country. Yeah. And I really hope that my child leaves the country. I just noticed a, a note here that says passionate Craig David. 
Yes. Oh, God. Okay, yeah, let's this go is, to that This one. is a worry. So I am very passionate about things that most people aren't, I right. guess. And I, I think being passionate is a great trait. Yes, so I think it depends what it is. I will slap you <laughs> on Craig's behalf. No, uh, yes, I adore Craig David. Do you? That's I so funny. I have a weird relationship with Craig David. Right. I took Liz to two gigs of his in three nights. Yeah. On our second day in England when we fly back in a few months, we're going to see Craig David. Right. I adore Craig David. How funny. Yeah, in music, Craig David, Jack Garrett and Niz Loppy are sort okay. of my three heroes. Right, interesting. Um, and then Surrey County Cricket Club is my other... I mean, it's li- yeah, Liz, Surrey County Cricket Club, my son. That's sort of the order of loves <laughs> in my life. I'm worried about that being passed on to your child, quite honestly, <sighs> that Craig I, David thing. We played Craig David in the hospital the day he was born. <laughs> that really concerns yeah. me. I feel sorry for your child. That is really, you know, that's almost some kind of abuse. <laughs> this is outrageous. We we this will be the last gonna, episode that we're we gonna do. fall out. This is the thing. This is the thing that we argued about. <laughs> I think it's funny because I couldn't come up with anything either. I was trying to think. Well, what are the other things apart from this alcohol thing that we would like our kids to pass on for generations to come? And the only thing that I could think of was that I was good at frisbee. I'm fucking brilliant at frisbee, by the way. I'm also pretty good. Shut up. And Liz doesn't play, and I've got one. What you're joking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 175 grams. You know it. I know the weight. <laughs> I know the weight. That's I can bounce it. I can spin it. I can do anything with a frisbee. Okay. Misspent youth traveling. That is nothing else to do on a beach no. all day apart from play frisbee. Well spent. I am I'm a loyal friend, mm-hmm. just so you know. I have a kind of an ape-like walk, which I would be happily pass on to my daughter, just so I can that. take the piss out of her, because <laughs> <laughs> everyone takes the piss out of my walk. I sort of like shuffle along like a funny little monkey. I don't know what's <laughs> wrong with me. Um, my entrepreneurial ways, I'm always creative and mm-hmm. thinking of new things. Your kids I have, have got that. They kids, yes. My kids have definitely got that, because my son was outside with a $5 sign washing cars yesterday. Yeah. Um, and there is actually one food that I won't eat. Go on. There's not one. Not one. I will eat anything. Okay. We're yeah. going to put that. I'm going to cook for you and yeah. we'll see if you eat it. I'll because... eat fucking anything. There's not one thing you can put in front of me and I wouldn't stuff it down my face. I am not a good cook. <laughs> I can <laughs> really? put a few things in front of you which you will not eat. <laughs> the impact of you giving up drinking affects more than just the local barman or the guy at the bottle shop or your mates that are disappointed that you no longer have your head in the toilet or a good drinking story down the pub. It goes deeper than the people around you and even deeper than you. When you choose sobriety, when you change and stay on track, your family get the best possible chance. They are offered an option, a chance to choose clarity over chaos. If you break the chain, you won't hand down the genes and the traits of an overdrinker, and your family have a higher chance of sidestepping mental health issues and self-confidence problems. By quitting drinking, you are giving those that come after you the best chance of having a joyful, authentic life. So never underestimate yourself. Never undervalue the importance of sobriety. What you are doing is amazing. You're creating a ripple that will trickle through your family for generations to come. Just think about that. Give yourself a big pat on the back. Oh, I'm patting my back. I'll do the quote, you do the song. Okay. The quote is by John Alston. He says, the only thing you take with you when you're gone is what you leave behind. And exactly. That's what we've been talking about today. How changing alcohol can actually change your whole family's life for a really, really long time. Yes. What an amazing thing to do. Legacy. A legacy. Love it. A, a, a healthy legacy. And not passing on this drinking habit and making everyone feel hungover and mental health issues and all this other shit that you get from it. Now, your song request comes with 
story, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm my so I'm going to re- recommend a song today, um, which is Sister Sledge, We Are Family, because obviously we're talking about generational mm. change. But actually, I went to a Sister Sledge concert like when I was about 20, and they held the microphone out to me to sing, and I sang the wrong words. No. And the woman shook her head. The lead singer of Sister Sledge shook her head at me and just kind of snatched the microphone out of my hand. And there was like a whole auditorium of people like <laughs> looking down on me. It was awful. Why you? Why did she think I you were I don't know. She the- just passed me the mic, and I just sang some stupid line that didn't even exist and then I had to like sort of walk away in shame it was awful Hamish oh my gosh yeah I bet you've had a few uh, embarrassing Craig David related stories don't tell us about them now no I always <laughs> want him to hold out the mic because I've got all the words right and he never does can you just make a promise to me that we won't need to talk about Craig David very often I can't promise that oh my god <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening everybody thank you If you're questioning your relationship with booze, you're struggling to moderate, or your hangovers are causing anxiety, it might be time to reach out for some support. Yeah, just talk to a mate about how you're feeling, contact a local doctor, find an AA or sobriety group. Fix got one. Yeah, just head to www.cuppa.community. Remember, if you're questioning yourself, it might be time to seek support. Even though this journey can be awkward, it is definitely worth it. And if you've enjoyed the Sober Awkward podcast, don't forget to review it, rate it, and share it with your mates. Do they have to share it with their mates? Yeah, of course they do. I'm not doing this for nothing, Hamish. Bloody hell. Have they shared it?